I'm caring for a newborn baby at the moment, my first child, and when I've not just been surviving the ordeal, I've been doing a lot of thinking about life, about parenthood, about work and the world, and to the daughter sleeping in my arms, and about my future goals and plans as both an author and an audio storyteller. And as a historian, when I think about the future, I also think about the past, because I think that's where we learn the most about the future. So when I was looking at how to end the year on the life and times of video games, I thought it might be nice to pull something out of my own archives and polish it up to use as a touchstone for pondering where to next for this show and for me. And I hope also it can serve as a good point of reflection for all of you. What you're about to hear is a remastered version of a story I made four years ago on my other podcast, Ludophilia, which has been on an indefinite hiatus for long enough that most of you probably don't know I even have another podcast. I won't spoil any of the details, but this is an interesting one. It's called If Monks Had Max. Enjoy. You're listening to Ludophilia. I'm Richard Moss. The way I first heard about the Macintosh, I mean, the Macintosh was, um, I was in this printing company, printing, we were printing Newsweek and Time magazine, big web offset printers, lots of magazine printing, lithographs. That's Brian Thomas. He was a young man in 1984, not long out of college where he'd studied a Bachelor of Arts and majored in English, and found gainful employment in a low-skilled blue-collar job. The Macintosh had just come out, and it brought with it a personal computing revolution. A computer for the rest of us, in function if not price, with a graphical user interface that used icons and a mouse pointer, and desktop metaphors, to approximate the real, tangible world of an office in the surreal virtual world of computing. One time at Newsweek, to kick off the Macintosh, they bought every ad in Newsweek, and we'd be printing it in the shop, and it was common for printers to hold up an ad, you know, that, that really, really fascinated them, usually, you know, some bodacious babe, and you would hold it up and go, wow, you know, she's hot, she's not hot. And I just remember seeing the first Macintosh ad, where here I was just licking and sticking, you know, this is in the early days before digital printing, and we would just tape down the negatives in registration. And when we got the ads from from Newsweek, it was pretty, it had already been laid out. It was pretty simple work we were doing. And the, the, the first Macintosh ad where it said, you too can be a knowledge worker, or at least that's what I remember it as saying. And here I was just a kind of a drone, you know, working on these, putting these magazines. And I held that up. And everyone just kind of stared at it. You know, where's the, where's the woman? Where's the... But it just hit me, you know, and I, um, I saved my money until I could buy a Macintosh. He got his first Mac two years later in 1986, a Macintosh Plus. In 1986, there were very few ways to create with a Mac. You could write and make digital black and white paintings. And that was about it, unless you were a programmer. The only exceptions being a couple of game-making programs. There was 
world builder for designing adventures and role-playing games with a mix of graphics and text on the screen and both keyboard and mouse-based input. Or there was Pinball Construction Set, a kind of software kit for designing virtual pinball tables. Brian gravitated towards the latter. The first pinball game I made was of me working my fingers were the levers and it was just how boring my job was. It was called working class pinball. And it was just a picture, a picture of me actually, you know, laying out Newsweek magazine. I guess I wanted interactive media. I wanted, you know, things that would engage people. I, I'm not a, a great artist or any kind of artist, really. I, um, I really can't draw anything, but I could certainly draw myself because it was in my bones. I mean, when I say myself, I mean, the job I did, I did it, you know, eight hours a day. I could draw my hands. I could draw my face because, because it was inside of me, you know, internalized by all those hours of work. But I couldn't, you know, just paint pictures that anybody would want to look at. But everyone at work, you know, played my game and we had a party we had and it was kind of fun. And the, and the early pinball games were, were passed around a lot. And uh, they weren't like anybody else's pinball games. Psychological pinball game was was about a dream I had about flying. And so we were flying at night, you know, that kind of thing. Then along came Hypercard, which, as I explored in episode 6 on how Robin and Rand Miller built worlds from a manhole, was a total paradigm shift for software creation. A kind of democratization of program authoring on a scale far beyond what the language BASIC had achieved since its invention in the 1970s. Hypercard was created by Apple fellow Bill Atkinson, one of the minds behind the Macintosh. And it was in part a database authoring tool and in part a software development tool. And in both capacities, it required no coding whatsoever, but it allowed people to write code in a syntax very similar to written English if they needed to access some advanced functionalities. Outside of those advanced options, you could drag and drop buttons and boxes, draw some artwork, write some text, and link all of the virtual cards that you made. These are the parts of your program, all with your mouse, together into stacks, which was the term used to describe Hypercard-authored software. Hypercard was built on the same principles as web pages, just several years before we had a World Wide Web. So you could use images and individual words or sentences as links to other stuff. And you could connect everything non-linearly. Brian Thomas, like so many other Mac users, was fascinated by it. Pinball construction set had felt constraining. No matter what he did, it had to come back to pinball. A parlor game. An object of entertainment, not of thought. So when Hypercard came out, it just hit me like this, you know, I can do what I want. I can do anything I want. So I was very excited about it. He'd read the Hypercard handbook by computer programmer and author Danny Goodman in the lead-up to Hypercard's public release in 1987. And when he heard a rumour that Apple had sent Hypercard discs to every Macintosh user group, He called up the president of the San Gabriel Valley Macintosh Users Group, who he'd never met despite being a member. 
He picked up a copy that evening and started building his first stack. A set of illustrated notes, kind of like the ones you might get in trouble for passing around in class at school, but a bit more intellectual than those would typically be. That said, the stack would begin intentionally in the most inflammatory, controversial way possible for the Mac's core initial audience of well-educated geeks, with a phrase guaranteed to get them riled up. It's an evolution. What a load of shit. And the idea had come to him at an unusual time. That I, I suffer from migraines. I did not know that at the time I was making monks. But passing notes was developed when I, I... So one way that worked for me a lot was that I would really study a problem and think about it. And one of the first really bad migraines I had, I was just in bed. And it was sort of like, because I grew up in Los Angeles, um, when big waves hit, you went under under the water to let the turbulence go above you. And so I had thought about this in detail, but I didn't have I didn't know how I was going to do it. And it was when I had what I now know was one of my first migraines, and I was sort of diving down under the turbulence, just in a sort of half sleep state. That that it came to me how I you know the whole passing notes metaphor, how I how I would do this argument I want to do about evolution. Brian drew inspiration for his passing notes stack, and for the stacks that followed, from the Los Angeles punk rock scene of the 1970s, and in particular, from a band called the Minutemen. I was working in this print shop for a long time, what we called the party shift, which was two in the afternoon till ten at night. So, and the clubs didn't really start until eleven o'clock, midnight. So every night you could go out, and I would drag my buddies down to see the Minutemen, who are, are now revered as one of the great punk bands of all time, I think. But And they, my, my friends would, I, I, they'd be like, the guys would be drinking in the alley outside the band club, and I'd say hi, and because I went to all their shows, they knew me, and they'd say hello. And uh, my friend would say, those guys are the band, we're not going in. <laughs> Because they just looked so average, so just guys you wouldn't talk to in high school, you know. And and that was really inspiring. You know, they weren't these uh, the most popular guys who formed you know, form bands. And, you know, if they could do it, anybody could do it. That was sort of the punk ethos. And so even though I couldn't draw anything, I couldn't, you know, I didn't see myself as a writer or anything. I just started making these games. And, and people loved them because nobody else was doing anything like it at the time. So they were a real inspiration. It's very appropriate that you were inspired by that because Hypercar did have this, this effect of um, being like the software punk. There was this informality, like uh, Bill Atkinson would just have menus that said stuff, you know, for extra things. And, and there was a kind of, you know, throw anything you want out there attitude. And, and the fact that I could get away with making my first stack, as you know, Passing notes was an argument that evolution shouldn't be taught in the public schools as an explanation of how human beings were created. And Bill Atkinson was a scientist, a rationalist, and you know everybody was a Star Trek fan. And the fact that they could accept that 
and, and Bill could go around saying it was one of his favorite stacks. It was, it was an amazing fact. And when he was a judge for the first hypercard contest, my, my work was uh, recommended with the guys at BMUG with the qualifying judges, uh, Berkeley Macintosh Users Group. And so they pounded, they, they, they thought, you know, this is crazy, insane, and they sent it through, but the, he never got a chance to vote on it because the editors of Macworld just looked at this and said, you know, not in our context. <laughs> I mean, first line was evolution. What a load of shit. And, and there was no way. Uh, and, and they were told, you know, the editors of Macworld were just told by Bill Atkinson that they weren't going to get away with that again. And so the next year, my work was included. And Macworld in those first couple of years were really snobbish. Well, yeah, I mean, what I was doing was, and I, you know, I remember when the editor of uh, Macworld, and I say his name, but I can't remember, he wrote an, edit, an article, it was actually, I think he wrote it in published or something, but pretty soon the artists are going to come, and then it will be the golden age of computing. Because at that point, it was the nerd, and nerds weren't, that's what's like, it's almost like a cool word now, geeks or nerds, but I mean, it was really the uncool people. At least they weren't artists, you know, or they were artists, but they, they weren't doing the kind of art. Well, it must be art because it sure as hell isn't anything else. And I remember the first contest they'd have in Mac World, they, they would give people, they would give artists prizes who were just doing weird stuff. I mean, you know, just like uh, blowing up the pixels so you'd see the stair steps and calling, you know, just putting things in quotations, being ironical. And that wasn't what we were doing. We were entertaining people. We were engaging people with games and not making, you know, this kind of art with a capital A. This was an exciting time. The Mac user groups were a happening place. There was a feeling that they were a part of history in the making. And Brian's passing notes stack had somehow tapped into that. And the people at the user groups took notice. And the user groups were, were different. I don't, I mean, at that point, you know, there were doctors and lawyers and postmen and, you know, garbage collectors. It was, uh, it was like the punk rock scene in some ways, you know, it was, um, and you know, the punk rock scene was funny because you would, I, I lived in Los Angeles and, and most of the clubs were in Hollywood. And the people that made movies went to those clubs and knew what they were like. But whenever they made a movie, they they showed a stereotype that didn't exist, you know, punkers, you know, with like funny hairdos and and the reality was that there was a whole mix of people that were just knew something was happening and oh, oh, young, old, you know, all classes. It was a really great scene, but it was nothing like what you would see in Hollywood uh, as to what looked like, you know, what punk rock was. And I could never really understand why they wanted to perpetuate the stereotype that didn't exist until they made enough movies that it started to exist. What Brian was creating with his volunteer helpers from the user groups was a collection of stacks called If Monks Had Max. I had a car accident. I was laid up, and so I had the time to, to work on that. And I just basically heard voices, you know, tell them why evolution, you know, what's wrong with evolution? I'm just the craziest thing. And I, 
And I was just had nothing else to do, so I did it. And uh, the fact that, you know, people like Bill Atkinson, you know, would talk about it. Going around, people would tell me, he's talking about your work, you know. And, it, and, and even now, the idea that somebody could say evolution, what a load of shit, and that it would be, it would be acclaimed by the people who were the brains that made the Macintosh and who were scientists, not Christians. Uh, it, you know, it was extraordinary. And then, of course, because Bill talked about my work, I was really popular in the user group and all the bunch of people who were all atheists, not agnostics, but atheists, volunteered to help me make uh, basically anything I wanted. So I, I decided to you know, build a monastery library one brick at a time and the first thing I made was this, I thought there should be something serious at the base, so we did the Im imitation of Christ, basic classic work of uh, Christian uh, inspirational writing. And they all went along with it. And, and, and they did because, I, because at that time, you know, nobody was making e-books. And my basic attitude was, why the fuck would you want to read an e-book on a computer, you know? And so we had to answer that question with everything we could. So when you opened up the book, and it's hard to imagine now, but we had like 1,200 baud BBSs. So we made tiny programs, tiny, tiny programs. It really is hard to imagine. At the speed those bulletin board systems transferred data, it would take maybe four hours or so to load a simple website today. Not an image-heavy one, no, not your Facebooks or Twitters, just a typical run-of-the-mill page that has several small, low-resolution images, some text, and a couple of static banner ads. So in order to make the file transfers reasonable over that paltry connection, we're talking really small programs. When you opened it up, the monks chanted, and the birds tweeted and every little sound bit was thrown in by a computer program so it sounded never repeated because the sound of the fountain bubbling and the monks chant, chanting and the monastery bells ringing were all put in by a program that the bells only rang once an hour and, and the birds you know only chirped in certain patterns so it sounded like you had a real life scene there on your little computer it would last for hours if you, you know, you, and it never um, sounded like a broken record. So people were just amazed that we were able to do stuff like that. The monastery jukebox had 50 songs in it, which, you know, was unheard of because this thing, these things weighed, you know, these things were so tiny. The earliest versions of monks were so small that they fit in their entirety on a single 800k floppy disk. Now, to put that in modern context, the portion of this episode's mp3 file that corresponds to just this sentence that I'm speaking right now would fill about half of an 800k floppy. Just that one sentence. They managed to squeeze in so much by being creative. Those 50 jukebox songs could each be played by any of 27 single-note instruments. So you'd hear monotonous renditions of, say, Tambourine Man on flute, or Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head on a single chord from a Beethoven symphony. 
And the joke was that the monastery jukebox was just in the background. We were talking about the, the meaning of history in this sleazy intergalactic bar, which was one of those punk bars that I, Al's Bar was my favorite bar in LA. And the idea was that if you didn't click on that, you never knew it. But if you clicked on the flashing lights on the jukebox, then you went up to the jukebox and there were 50 songs and you could rearrange the, the instrumentation. Most other parts of the program were either tiny sound files running on timers and button prompts, or text and black and white illustrations. I'm curious, these programmers that you were meeting at the user groups, how were you beginning to work with them? Were you, they just like, saying, um, I'd like to help, or were you saying, I, I need some help? No, it was like, you know, I guess it was like Tom Sawyer and, and whitewashing the fence. Philip A. Moore Jr. was the, uh, the key programmer for the early monks. I mean, he was the programmer. And everybody else came in different versions later. And uh, Phil was a, a postman. And I, uh, everybody was playing around with hypercard. But it was like a, it was this toolbox, but you had to do something with it. But the question is, what would you do with it? And so I, I invited him over to see um, the first version of Passing Notes that I made, the argument about evolution. And Phil, Phil was a determined atheist, but nobody was, you know, mixing, you know, pictures and ideas the way I was. And what he made was a, electronic bulletin board simulation so that when you clicked on this thing people were like ripping the wires out of their Mac because we thought they might be making it might be making a long distance telephone call but what it was was a simulation of the discussion that that stack engendered and there you know there are people telling me I was crazy but there were also scientists from JPL who um, were very intrigued by what it was saying and and, and criticizing it, you know, and from construct, making constructive criticism. So I changed. If there was any scientist that thought anything I said wasn't scientific, it was, it was changed. But basically, they were experts in their field. And, and what they were really saying is that the popular books that you're reading are not accurate. So we had to change some things. But it was a, there was a whole discussion. And that, and that was actually what I think Bill Atkinson liked so much. Because at this time, there's no, I want to say there's no internet, but there's no World Wide Web. And the internet is these little bulletin boards that people have in their homes that you call up their house and, and you leave a message and then other people leave messages. So we just created re a simulation of one of those bulletin boards in which people were arguing about my stack and adding their, mess adding their criticism to it. And we sort of created a simulation. Over time, they built and expanded upon a journal keeping tool which some fans literally used for decades. When we, made it, when we made a journal, the first time it was pretty sophisticated. It was about like the journals that you can buy now. But when we made the second and third versions of Monks, we tried to think, how can we make a journal like no one else has ever made it? And uh, then we made our, our threaded or structured, our threaded journal so that the idea was you know, to read how people had used their journals in the past and 
empower them to do it with our journal much better. And the first case was Henry David Thoreau, who created this journal and then cut it up and destroyed it by, you know, stitched the pages together, literally, when he wanted to write articles. And, and so we had this idea that you just create this journal and then you could do a search on something like Moonlight that Henry David Thoreau wrote about, and it would take all the, all the journal entries about Moonlight and put them in a separate thread, and then you could just print that thread out so that it could take your non-structured journal and, and make something out of it. And then once we had that idea, we created, we, we'd inverted it so that you could uh, create this, this, the topics first and write into them. And we looked to see who, would, who was doing that kind of thing, and there was a whole structured journal idea where you'd have threads like affirmations and dreams and dialogues with your higher self and all these new age things. And I got to write a sort of tongue-in-cheek new age book called Get an Inner Life about how to use our journal to, you know, create a new self. There was a massive volume on the Kennedy assassination, complete with a guided tour from Brian that picked out the passages in the Warren Commission report that he thought were most interesting. Again, functioning in part to let users know that they could do the same thing with their own bookmarks and commentary. A later programmer, Richard Gaskin, made a tool to rearrange journal text to help you find new ideas in your own writing. Later versions also added a solitaire card game, and they'd done a kind of monk adventure in the earlier releases. It was called Meet in Conversation, in reference to the vow of silence and of vegetarianism that medieval monks took. During special feasts, they'd get a reprieve from both vows and have meat in conversation. The game broke convention by disallowing any act of violence, and also by preventing players from hoarding every object that wasn't nailed down, which is how you'd normally play an adventure game. Instead, you could only take things that were given to you. And somewhere along the way, they went commercial with a CD-ROM release from the Voyager company. They came to the LA Users Group to show off their first uh, CD-ROM, which was a, a close reading of Beethoven, one of Beethoven's symphonies, with Robert Winter. And after they, were get, after they finished, you know, I walked up to uh, Bob Stein and Robert Winter and said, well, I'm glad I've got some competition now. And they looked at me like, who the fuck are you, you know? And when I told them what I'd done, they, okay, we know with Monk said Max, you know? And that was how I met Bob Stein, and we stayed in touch. And so when I wanted to make a commercial version of, of uh, Monk said Max, he, he knew who I was, and he, he was interested. And I, you know, got to go to New York and, and, and work on it with him, uh, he had some, you know, really top, top programmers. And the one thing that I really treasured when I showed them what I had done with Monk's, the opening with the bookcase, the four-sided revolving bookcase, and, and his uh, top programmer said, well, best damn table of contents I've ever seen. So, so you know, it was, it was fun working with Bob, but uh, I certainly didn't make any money. So, um, 
and I don't want to, I don't want to talk bad about anything there. So, but it was, um, it was fun thinking that, you know, they were doing all their work and, and that I could, uh, take them on myself, the best work they had done. In any case, by this time, the World Wide Web was coming up from under them. So once I was working with the Voyager Company, the World Wide Web was in full swing. And that was really like, you know, when the meteor came that killed the dinosaurs, the World Wide Web was the meteor that killed CD-ROMs. and. and the kind of multimedia I was doing. And we knew, you know, that we had to get this stuff out fast because there was a limited time uh, for it to sell. And uh, boy, you know, Bob's time with the Voyager Company, they own the rights, the digital right, you know, Criterion Corporation? A, it was the same company. And Bob had a partner and they owned the digital rights to a lot of movies because the, the movie producers didn't really know what those were worth. And Bob made the choice to stick with the Voyager stuff and his partner, who still owes me money. And Bob at different times sold off the, the rights to that. And it wasn't, you know, it seemed more creative to see stuff he was doing to him. But you can see what a crazy business decision that was because Voyagers no longer exist. And Criterion is huge. And so when I was in New York, it was still the same company. It was, they hadn't totally split yet. So it wasn't movies, you know, where the, where, where, still, where the money was, not, not the kind of uh, CD-ROMs a Voyager company was making. They did some wonderful things like A Hard Day's Night, uh, where they were interactive stacks to control the movie. But the future was the Criterion Corporation just doing the movies with the extras and all the stuff that they do. And you know, I first saw the World Wide Web at, I was at a hypertext conference and in the middle of the night, we went to a nuclear physics lab in one of the universities around Seattle because there was a professor there who, whose daughter I knew who who had a computer hooked up to the web. It was that rare. And the guy that took us over there and showed us got flown to Lucerne, Switzerland, you know, as one of the pioneers of the World Wide Web. And they said to me, Brian, you should be doing this. You know, and I said, no, you know, it wasn't very exciting compared to the stuff I was doing at that time. They were just, they could show a movie, big deal. So I guess I made, I sort of made the wrong decision, except that I'm not a programmer. So I waited to make a, uh, a web page until there was a uh, page mail, a program that helped you do that, the first program. And you kept uh, improving monks for, for a few years. For far too that. long, for far too long, yeah. I, I, you know, technology kept advancing and it was extremely difficult to keep up with it. Boy, Steve Jobs, the OS X. As I've said before, it's like programming when Steve was developing OS X on the Mac was like 
being the architect on a planet where they change the laws of gravity every six months. And he was changing the underpins and underpinnings of the operating system. And so we'd make something and be ready to release it, and then it wouldn't work. It was really tough. And, um, you know, monks is an artifact. I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled that people loved it and used it for decades, but uh, it's, um, it's like a branch of evolution that didn't, uh, as I said, you know, the perfect analogy is when I was in New York with a Voyager company, and the Criterion Corporation split off, and they, um, you know, digital selling movies on DVDs with extras, that was the future, not making CD-ROMs. That was plucked from the dusty archives of Ludophilia. When I interviewed Brian for that story, we talked in detail about play and fun and the life lessons from monks, as well as his life post-monks when he returned to his passion photography a few years into this millennium, which means he worked on monks for an incredibly long time. And as you just heard, he's a pretty spiritual and deep-thinking guy, so it was a fascinating conversation. So much so that I made a second story out of that, that I'll link to in the episode notes. Now most of the music and all of the sound effects you heard here came from If Monks Had Max, the program itself, with some light editing. The exceptions were a few minutes of music that I composed myself, a couple of snippets from two Minutemen songs, and longer sections of tracks by Kai Engel and Chris Zabriskie. If you'd like to try Monks out for yourself, or just learn more about the, this one-of-a-kind program, head to Brian's website, rivertext.com monks.html, and uh, check it out there. You'll be able to download both the original HyperCard version as well as the, uh, the CD-ROM release after that. Ludophilia will return. And so will the Life and Times of Video Games. In fact, I have an interview for the next episode of the Life and Times of Video Games penciled in to happen around mid-January. And there are three episodes in total that I intend to publish in the first few months or so of 2022. I'll talk more about this another time, but the show is changing. There'll be fewer episodes going forward and I may even do away with this seasonal release structure. But, on the other hand, what I do publish will tend to be more ambitious. But anyway, that is it for me this year. I hope 2021 treated you okay, and may your 2022 be blessed with joy and happiness and dreams fulfilled. You've been listening to The Life and Times of Video Games, my name is Richard Moss. I'll see you next year.